Bobby, thanks for being on the show. Sockers, is that so? Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. Of course. Uh, on today's show, we're going to be talking about some of the misconceptions around artificial intelligence, uh, being a founder yourself as well, of a very interesting company, um, and also a little bit on your international background, but I think we'll try and focus on AI because that's all the cool new buzz um, that's out there. But uh, you actually have practical experience of AI and trying to get it off the ground. But um, with that said, you have a very interesting background. I mean, you've worked all over the place. You've worked in different companies. Uh, I was wondering if you could just give us a, a brief synopsis of, you know, where you went to college and then kind of how you mapped your way from college to where you are today. Yeah, I went to college at UC San Diego and, you know, I, I studied economics and electrical engineering. You know, two things that don't really have to do anything with AI, <laughs> more or less, right? And, you know, I'm not a computer scientist by any means and I'm, I can't code like a computer scientist. Um, but uh, that's where my humble beginnings began as you know, any university student trying to find their way out in the world right now. That's great. And then so after college, how did you sort of map your way into AI? I mean, did you work at a company that was working on a project with that? Or how did you sort of meander into this space from, from then on? Yeah, my, my journey started out um, as any good, uh, you know, student who follows what their parents says about, you know, getting a successful job and whatnot would do is I got my first job at Intel. I think I got that job because I wasn't simply someone who had a business background. So I was the only person with an engineering background uh, in my cohort. And, you know, that was a, having an engineering background was a good launch pad. Um, it's something that I don't use as much uh, in my career, but it has definitely helped me solve business problems, solve um, even engineering problems or, technical problems along the way as well. So from that, I went to Intel uh, and uh, my second company, I guess you could say was Apple. And we can go a little bit deeper into my experience there later. Uh, shortly after that, it was Amazon. So a lot of these consumer focused companies that um, you know, build something that's, that you can touch with your hands or something that you use every day to make purchasing decisions, to find something new, to you know, control your blinds like I do every day. And uh, after my long and fun stint in the, uh, the glorious corporate world the, of big tech, I went into the startup realm. My first AI startup that I was at uh, uses an AI algorithm to detect fake news or bias news or misinformation. Um, and the second AI startup uh, I've been a part of uses computer vision, um, so less of a text-based um, sample uh, of data. Uh, and uses video content to detect things like violence or traffic hazards in CCTV footage and helps detect things like, uh, you know, war crimes being happening or being published in social media channels. So all using the same fundamentals of machine learning for different types of applications. Well, that's quite interesting because on the surface, I think about AI as a general platform and there's different use cases. And one of the things I've struggled with personally is understanding what are the use cases for the technologies that are out there? Do you apply it in financial services? Is it in cybersecurity, as you mentioned? There's a company called Darktrace, I believe, that does some AI there. But uh, figuring out what the use case of AI is, uh, is something I struggle with because it's not so obvious all the time, number one, and it's also dependent secondarily on the intelligence or the level of AI platforms or machine learning platforms available to you to be able to solve that problem in the most accurate or in the best way possible. So walk us through a little bit of how 
you decided that this was the problem you wanted to solve based on the, the technology and also on the customer problem that you saw out there? Yeah, I think at the, at the core of it is automation, right? We want to re not replace, but really enable human beings into doing something faster or being, um, being at the very core decision point in any process rather than doing something that's repetitive. And so, uh, you know, I saw that very early in my career where automation will not only help prop your career, but also help uh, reduce a lot of, you know, normal everyday activities that you need to do for part of your job. So uh, as a result of that, I knew that AI was essentially the direction that we're heading towards in every aspect in terms of, you know, essentially what you said about, you know, let's say applying for a credit card, letting AI decide. Um, I think AI is very broad and generic term as well. And sometimes AI is simply more or less machine learning or statistics rather than a real human like decision that's being made in the back. Right. Uh, and I think having been in this sector now, I, you know, I'm a, both a, a proponent as well as skeptic of AI. And oh, uh, why, why are you each of them? Well, so I, I believe fundamentally that AI uh, will get um, sophisticated enough to the point where it becomes a part of our daily lives and works really well. And you don't have to repeat yourself when you're, you know, asking your blah, blah, blah device uh, that's sitting there to, you know, tell you something. Right. And so there's that fundamental part where it's going to be very helpful and it can actually address all your queries that you have. Uh, the downside is where you see AI kind of fall into trap or bring us into trap is we rely on it too much. Let's say, you know, uh, AI becomes biased as it often does because the people that are labeling the data might have a bias, fundamental bias themselves. Uh, you see, you know, tech companies get into scrutiny right now with Congress because they think the AI is biased in terms of how it determines, you know, the results, right? And so I think that's one of the downsides to AI is, you know, you need to make sure the data being fed in uh, is truly accurate uh, and clean and neutral. Uh, and at the same time, you want to make sure the results are explainable. You want to make sure it's not a black box. And so a prime example would be uh, back in the day, well, not really that long ago, but when the Apple card first came out, I think Goldman Sachs was the bank um, that was rejecting or declining applicants. Um, and people, despite having the exact same income, uh, a female was more likely to get rejected in that system uh, than uh, her male partner despite having uh, equal, if not better uh, credit, more or less. And so I think that's uh, one issue that we're seeing where the bank itself can explain why the rejection happened. It doesn't really know the neural pathway that made the decisions. And so we're, we're kind of finding a, um, a medium balance now of simply back black box AI and explainable AI where it can actually tell you exactly why each decision was made so that let's say you do have to testify in front, of, in front of Congress why your car swerved left instead of right at that decision point. You can say, well, the car was looking at 10 people here and five people here, and those people are moving at X speed. They're more likely to be able to avoid this car. You know? and, and so that puts you in a much better situation and puts the consumer at more of an ease as well because simply relying on the crutch of, oh, you know, the computer says no is the worst response ever, right? And you get frustrated uh, because you're getting grilled for it. Consumer gets frustrated because they want answers. Um, and regulators get more frustrated because they can't solve this really. And regulation is not going to be the thing that's going to solve it. 
Yeah, you touched on two points there, scrutiny. Uh, the first being how it's such a black box. And now I can only imagine what those CEOs are going through or have gone through as part of the scrutiny process. I mean, in front of Congress, there are oftentimes Congress doesn't even know what questions to ask because they don't even know what it's about. Um, so hopefully it won't be too hard on them. But explaining something that is a black box, it's, it's, it's something I hopefully don't ever have to do. But at the same time, yeah, it, it's learning on its own. And in fact, when it comes to AI or machine learning, which we need to parse out a little bit, there are sort of systems that act, there are systems that predict, and then there are systems that learn, relate, and evolve. So, you know, there's different levels even within it. And it sounds like the more complicated it gets, the harder it is to explain. Is that the reality or? That's right. And I think the, the biggest issue, and I think startups are doing themselves a disservice nowadays by calling themselves AI. Um, I've, I've seen it firsthand where a company will call themselves, oh, an AI company, but the AI is not really AI. It's just humans labeling in the background. Um, and I, I find that really frustrating because it discredits people who have done a lot of research in the space, who actually want to produce something that makes sense. But it's either pressure from investors or um, you know, pressure from the CEO or um, just a lack of direction. Um, and what it does is it creates a product that's actually unusable, that creates great press, but actually doesn't really solve a problem that we really need to solve for in a, in a safe way that's consumer friendly, as well as, you know, user friendly, um, uh, you know, if you're the person that has to make decisions from a corporate level. Yeah, I remember seeing a statistic somewhere about less than half of companies calling themselves AI companies were actually AI. They were just data science or something as simple as matching two points or something like that. And they call themselves themselves AI. I mean, that's pretty, uh, pretty intense. But in terms of the usability, there's a lot of criticism around it because as smart as Siri and all these things are, which go into national language processing and all that type of stuff, it still doesn't feel very user friendly. It gets things wrong a lot of the time. Uh, the output is not what I expected. And even trying to correct it is a mind, mind ache because it's already so complicated. I can't go in there and just fix it on my own. So in terms of the usability, of the AI platforms or whatever it is you're doing, do you see that that's the biggest deterrent to people adopting AI in general, or is, is that not really a big factor? Yeah, I think that part, one of the faults of being in the 2020 society is we have so many different accents, right? And so many ways of saying things. And it, I think it'll get to the point where, you know, uh, the self-assistant that I'm not going to chime up right now is going to understand everything that we're saying but we have so many ways of expressing ourselves in different accents languages and so on and so forth that uh, from a actual language processing standpoint it's beginning it's beginning to get harder and harder especially when you say oh i am from england but you might have you know 10 different accents if you're in england and so there's no way for it to map oh i need a decipher your language as part of this pile of people rather than that pile. And what if you call someone from the North, uh, you know, you think they have this accent, but you actually, you know, accidentally classify them with a different accent that might be slightly, you know, 50 miles away. Right. And, and I think that's where the issue really comes in is we, we need to somehow personalize um, these features, but right now we're also pushing towards privacy. And so if we open all the floodgates and say, hey, tell me everything about you, you know, where you're from, where you're born, you know, what is your upbringing, what do your parents talk like? I think AI can technically be a lot smarter and more pinpoint to exactly what you need. But we also don't want companies spying on you, monetizing off of you, right? 
And so I think that's the tough balance right now. And, you know, I give Siri pop props, even though it has these faults because it's not processing this data and trying to sell you anything off of it, um, where some of the other assistants, assistants are. And I say that even though I use one of them as well, because, um, you know, there's just certain skills that I find a little bit easier to use and I got my device for free. So, you know, <laughs> money talks, right? And yeah. And, yeah, and so, you know, it, it's, it's sitting there, it, it already knows everything about me. Um, so I'm a little bit more comfortable about, you know, the level of exposure I'm getting. But uh, yeah, to your question, I think it can be perfected. Uh, it's, 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 it just depends on how comfortable are we uh, letting it have full access to who we are. Uh, if we open the floodgates, I do suspect, you know, a AI an AI assistant can help predict what we're going to do every part of the day. You know, depending on how much access you give, it can even know when we're about to go to the toilet or when we make our coffee. If we want, right? If we want to get full access to everything, record all of our activities uh, using our Apple Watch, uh, even us jotting it down. But uh, right now, I think we're kind of shifting hard towards the other way of uh, having privacy as well. And privacy means different things for different people. Some people will think it means uh, not knowing anything. Some people misunderstand what privacy laws mean, and that's another area. And then there's GDPR that makes everything else complicated as well. And from a, an entrepreneur standpoint, it, it's even more frustrating because it only helps the big corporations who have lawyers to you know establish those systems versus... Uh, a small shop person like I am nowadays. Ah, that's quite interesting, actually, in terms of how regulation uh, stifles creativity. One of the things, I'm a big fan of Milton Friedman, who always speaks about the freedom of markets and how you should reduce barriers to, uh, to entry and how most laws and regulations are literally created to uh, entrench the incumbents and make it harder for startups to get into there. So I guess this is sort of where the rubber meets the road. So let's say you go from this, the point that you want to solve a problem. How did you actually take those practical first steps towards addressing GDPR, towards uh, finding as a data scientist or AI specialist or machine learning? So walk us through some of those practical things you had to do to actually go from, from idea to implementation and then hopefully growth and, and later, later on. Yeah, I think this is one of those things that carry on culturally from uh, big tech more or less is focusing on the, the problem you're solving for, focusing on the customer and then working backwards from that. So looking at, at the simplest form, what is the pain point we're trying to solve for the customer? Okay, well, we know what our guiding light is. How do we actually build something towards that now, whether it be a direct route or uh, perhaps a windy road to actually you know, solve that from a process standpoint and a technical standpoint. And so things that we would navigate are, you know, how much information or how little information do we need to, uh, you know, solve this person's need. Let's just say they are looking for a job and they want to only apply for these type of roles. You know, is there a bare bone minimum? Um, and are, is there information that we're asking for that's actually not needed? Right. The, the, and then and from that, we can kind of prune and de-risk ourselves from what features are really needed out there. Or sorry, what features are core and what are just nice to haves and what are actually absolutely not needed. And I think that helps us play nicer with GDPR. The tough thing right now is, you know, a lot of the core functionality to a lot of problems that we're trying to solve for from an AI standpoint do require some type of consent. Um, and 
What that means is uh, it's a very bad user onboarding experience where the user has consent to every single thing. Um, it gets to the point where the user is actually now desensitized to the fact. So now you know, a user might be using a shady app and they're giving out their information because they're like, oh, it's just another checkbox, you know, same cookie banner that's going to be tracking me everywhere. You know, I don't care anymore. But um, I think that's where regulation has overdone it to the point where it's now um, not user-friendly and actually doing more harm than good as a result. Because now you just think, oh, well, it's all GDPR, right? It's all safe. I can just, you know, tick every single box and it'll be fine. Uh, and that's not the case. You know, bad actors will still be out there collecting information and they're probably collecting more and getting more from consumers because they think they're protected. So from th this point on, you figured out, okay, I need to know how much information I need, how much is too much, how I can use it to be more accurate. I imagine there aren't too many people that are actually skilled in this field of machine learning, either from a leadership perspective or from a data quality enhancement perspective, so technical skills, or even just general understanding. How did you go about building a team or assembling the toolkits that you need to actually solve this problem uh, beyond maybe the GDPR requirements? Yeah, so for this one, it's a, I mean, the best guiding light is also relying on legal counsel and mm -hmm. to make sure you're not over collecting data as well. Um, so, you know, that's something that we are very firm on, you know, making sure providing um, the core, you know, basic, basic functionality without overdoing what we need. Um, and, and so getting the team in the right guy in light is having a very close uh, pulse with what the product um, is trying to solve for. And also being very close to the engineering side and software development side in terms of, you know, what we should and shouldn't have. So for me, I have very close discussions with our CTO every day about, you know, are we implementing the right policies? Uh, are we commercially um, getting ourselves into trouble if we collect this type of data? Do we need this type of data? Is this data actually valuable to us? Um, and so I, I think those are the... When you tie in commercial discussions with privacy discussions as well as technical discussions, um, rather than silo them, uh, in the context of GDPR, I think that's where you fall less in the trap. And you also allow you know, the engineers and data scientists to understand what is the business problem you're trying to solve for. So they're not just blindly collecting data or extrapolating it as a result, right? So I think uh, at a high level, what it means is you de-silo your organization. So everyone knows the problem that you're solving backwards from and you all plan how to get there, uh, you know, given the constraints that are set out for you. Yeah, you touched on something that was quite interesting there, which was in terms of the commercial aspect of AI. It seems to me it's a sort of winner takes all. We're seeing a sort of polarized economy now where, you know, some platforms are just dominating and they aren't even AI specific. I can only imagine the future is gonna be one AI for, or one AI platform for something and all the other competitors fall by the wayside because it just keeps reinforcing the more data it gets, the smarter it gets, which means the better it gets compared to the rest of the competition. So I, I wonder, do you ever think about the downsides of potential um, bifurcation or this extreme difference between the winners and the losers in this space? In other words, do you have to shoot for gold in order to, to win this race or is there room for a second, third and fourth because there is a business model whereby the, the second, third, and fourth can uh, be viable. Yeah, that, that's a very tricky one. I think, I think at the end of the day, you need money to get good data. 
especially if you're trying to label data as well. And in terms of uh, talent as well, right? The best researchers in the world are going to get poached by some of these bigger companies. It's money talks, so there's free food and comfort. And, you know, you, you already know the household names that will, you know, most likely dominate in some way in this space. Uh, I think where you can stand out as a competitor is how are you solving a problem that, you know, they might not be solving for because with the big companies, what they're solving for is something that will be very generic in a sense that will solve uh, a common problem for a lot of people. But if you're trying to solve a, a pain point for a very unique set of customers um, that bigger companies aren't, uh, I think that's where you can win and that's where you'll find your niche. So for example, an AI dating app um, is not something that a big company will go after uh, because it's, you know, not their thing, right? This is why some uh, products even get decommissioned by Google or, you know, uh, end of life by Google because they don't see a big enough market for it. But if you want to create, let's say, 10,000 little markets for little unique cases um, and you're a small company creating all these little solutions, you still exist. And in a sense, that's building your way up into uh, an AI house, more or less. And so, yeah. uh, to your question, I think there's still, it's very top heavy. Um, and they will be top heavy. And I think for good as well, because uh, people will trust a company that focuses uh, on privacy and has the infrastructure to protect their information. Uh, let's say you're a small company. It's actually quite challenging to protect your users as well, right? There's a technical challenge. You might have all the best intentions, but you know, it, it's a matter of fact that you're going to get hacked or you know, you're at risk and your user at risk um, unless you put uh, the same parameters in as a big company. And so, it, you know, it, it's good and bad that, let's say, you know, AI is only driven by Apple. You know, they're privacy first. They, you know, want anonymized, but still keep everything on device and you know, cater to you as much as possible versus, uh, you know, a solution that's, that might be a free solution out there that might be very good for your use case, but your data suddenly disappears and, um, you know, everyone else on the internet has it or something. So, yeah, I, you know, whether or not it's, it's good or bad, I think there's a... It depends on who you ask. <laughs> if you ask uh, the European Commission, they're going to say it's terrible. Um, but I think there, there's some good that comes out of a, you know, a big company that's always been very user focused uh, to also be providing you something that's not going to be charged um, that extra as well. Yeah, I'm actually on the panel for the Artificial Intelligence Parliamentary Group here, and I go for these meetings every other week or so often. And exactly some of the points that you're mentioning here come up in that same forum as well. Smaller companies have to have the same privacy standards. If not, customers won't be able to use them, which puts them at a disadvantage and creates that David versus Goliath. But yeah. the way you put it, it, it might not necessarily be the worst thing if they can find a market and hopefully um, you know, find a way to address those concerns in such a way that allows them to be commercially viable without having the cost structure necessary to uh, you know, adhere to what the big companies are doing. So even that in itself might be an opportunity, who knows? But when it comes to revenue and cost reduction, you know, when someone adopts AI, those are the two things I'm looking for. Either I want to make more money, I want to reduce the amount of money I'm spending, or maybe I want to mitigate some risk in some way, uh, shape or form. So I, I guess the question here is, what does your company do specifically? And which of these three categories do you think yours falls into? Hmm, that's a great question. So. I'll, I'll, there, there's there's a, a couple of ventures that uh, I'll mention. So one is um, Shapes AI, and that's the computer vision um, uh, company that I mentioned earlier. And 
it's it's a focus of doing or it's a balance of doing what's good for society as a whole i think uh, that's a core focus um it sounds fluffy but at the end of the day you know if you do something good enough and you bring enough value i think th the commercials will come and follow along no matter what uh someone's got to pay them you know to keep the lights on right and so you know let's say you're creating uh you're creating an ai that will automatically detect crime that's happening in the city or help protect people when there's no one else around and it's middle of the night uh you know um a woman's walking by themselves right and you know if ai automatically detects a crime that's happening you know that right there that potentially saves someone's life and so i think from that standpoint um having access to data and um having full access to data it makes sense it's commercially viable but let's say um what was the other example um uh or other question that you mentioned sorry that just slipped yeah. my mind no, that's fine. It's pretty much about putting this into a category of, is this a revenue generating opportunity? Is it a cost reduction opportunity or is it a risk mitigation opportunity? Uh, you know, in other words, yeah. let's think of this use case where you are actually able to track um, the whereabouts of someone to ensure that they're safe. I don't think perhaps that's a revenue generating opportunity, maybe a cost reduction and you, you need less police around or something like that. Yeah, so so it, it's probably more on the cost reduction side. Mm. So um, I'll, I'll give you some examples. So, so one is, you, let's say you save, um, you know, uh, the city X amount of hospital bills or uh, crimes, right? Each crime can be five to ten k worth of damages, if not more. So let's say you save even five to ten of those, um, and you charge fifty k just to keep the server cost running. Rather than there, it keep it pays for itself. Um, not to mention the you know, the human damages that are um, prevented, right? Uh, on the other side, I, this is less, I'll, I'd say most of the examples are gonna be less of a revenue generating opportunity, but more of a cost saving opportunity. But um, for let's say social media companies and you're automatically detecting bad content that's on the platform, each instance of a content violation, uh, like a terrorist content being placed next to Procter & Gamble or another company that wants to take out all their ads from the Facebook platform, for example, right? That's a huge billion dollar uh, market cap hit every time that happens. And so the cost <laughs> saving there is, you know, it can be measurable in the amount of market cap you lose per instance. Uh, the revenue opportunity there is basically equal to whatever the advertising dollars would have been um, have, you know, how they continue to advertise there. And so I, I think for, for that type of AI solution, um, the value that you bring is measured in how much you save. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I think AI in that instance, it, it's never really a revenue, a purely revenue generating thing, unless you're going more towards consumer side or you're doing something that, uh, is, uh, I guess process saving and in a sense you're automating some type of process like financial forecasts for example um even then you're saving time right you're saving resources when it comes to revenue generating uh, it would be let's say you're a consumer you want to know what stocks to buy the ai tells you you know what you should buy and it takes a commission out of that or something mm -hmm. like a uh, betterment for example um where they have a robo advisor right so i think that's where you have the revenue generating ai versus a cost saving ai that makes money off of the cost that they're saving yeah, no, that's an excellent point. I'm, I'm, at this juncture, I'm just thinking of all the different layers that are involved with it because 
you know, our audience might still be a bit demystified by this word AI, which encompasses all these things. We mentioned robo-advisor, we mentioned um, machine learning, we mentioned all these different things. So from your perspective, uh, where, where do you kind of draw the line and say that this is actually intelligent, this is actually AI and where it's not? And maybe if we can just demystify some of these terms, so a robo-advisor or a chatbot, for instance, versus something that is a bit more sophisticated, where do you kind of draw that line and say, this is, this is AI, this is not? Yeah, if something analyzes data and it gives you a percentage of um, a likelihood that it is, you know, to be, you know, a threshold of, you know, 70% that it's crime, for example, um, that's, that's probably the, the minimum threshold I want to get to. Um, where it's truly AI is, it's self-learning. It's also, um, uh, there's self-reinforcement learning as well. So it's making these decisions. It knows, oh, you actually didn't like that decision, so I'm now going to change my algorithms in the back end or ch change how I think about this uh, problem on the back end. That's what real AI is, is when you have uh, a dynamic system that, not, that doesn't just simply take things and spit, spit it back out. Right. Mm. I think machine learning is um, you know, the pre-AI where you're just looking at data, you're scanning it, you're analyzing it, you give it a statistical output. Where you get to AI is you have the circle where it's essentially a, uh, a flywheel where, okay, it takes data, it makes decisions, now it knows, oh, for the next time I see this, I'm going to get better at it. I also know that you don't want this and uh, therefore I'm going to do this instead for you. Or, oh, I know that uh, I can back test the data that I predicted and my uh, predictions were wrong. Therefore, next time I'm going to make a different type of forecast. So uh, let's say, you know, as a human would, when they see um, themselves buying into an earnings report, they made the wrong call. Now they know next time not to buy a stock before it runs up, um, leading to up to our earnings report, except um, when it's Apple stock and it just keeps running. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. I, uh, I always struggle with how much to actually trust it versus not, you know, because the output sometimes are self-reinforcing, as you mentioned. So what happens if I'm 20 years old and then the 25-year-old me or 30-year-old me is completely different? Now it's learned all this stuff. It's backtracking based on someone that doesn't exist anymore. At least I hope not. I should have changed after 20 years old. But that reinforcement reminds me of something I read about how Google and some of these search engines were struggling because it would give you such a myopic view of the world. When I search for the word Egypt and you search for the word Egypt, I might get the football team and I don't know, the pyramids and you might get travel destinations or whatever it is. Do you worry that that, the fact you, you mentioned earlier on, which is trying to de-silo, the technology itself is actually trying to reinforce silos in some capacity, shape or form. Yeah, I do worry quite an extent, especially when it comes to uh, criminology. You know, let's just say a human bias thinking, oh, I've seen people who wear hoods um, and I think, you know, they all are criminals based on, you know, my experiences, right? And that might have been 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and my, it might just be a cultural thing to wear hoods now, for example. Um, and and I, I see that same issue playing to AI where it will, it will think someone is not um, dynamic and does not grow. So AI is unable to really map out a person's uh, growth in terms of their personal development. It can simply say, oh, someone who is been in prison once is always going to be likely to, you know, go back to prison. Is that simply because the, you know, um, it's actually a human nature thing or is that a st system 
systemic issue that exists where you know people can't get hired so they get desperate right and mm -hmm. so i think that's where ai uh, doesn't work is when it comes to things like predicting crime uh even dictating uh, a court case decision based on you know how likely it is for someone to you know go back to prison or commit another crime for example so i think there's there's a fine line there where human nature does to does get to or does have to play a part in shaping AI. And maybe we can't use AI for those type of things because it's not sophisticated enough to understand the, you know, the, the minefield and the maze that is the human mind. I don't think it, as, as fast as it, uh, AI or supercomputers can compute, it won't understand the human nature development that happens throughout the life, um, throughout our lives. You, you know, for example, take me, they can say, oh, he's an immigrant from China. He's gonna follow this path and he's gonna become a doctor, right? <laughs> um, but that's clearly not the case, and that's something AI can't do. We can't understand that human nature element of it. It's simply taking data and making assessment based on things it's seen before, but it doesn't always handle cases that it hasn't seen before. Um, and, you know, it can't handle black swan events as well, just like it will fail when it tries to predict the next pandemic. Yeah, I've tried to use a few of these softwares to see just how good the AI can be in understanding human nature and replicating it. And sometimes it's absolutely marvelous and it's just so seamless. And other times it's catastrophically wrong. Uh, I, you know, trying to make music as well. I, I've seen some, I don't know if it's the quality of algorithms or the quality of data, whatever it is, it must be a confluence of factors, but you know, it'll write some beautiful, beautiful notes and you'd think, man, that surely had to come from a human. Then it comes from a, an actual machine or from AI. And then other times it just creates something that's so cataclysmically wrong. And it's like, oh my goodness, you, it's missing that essence, that um, human touch. In fact, there was a, a talk that I looked at whereby, I think it was Jack Ma that said, uh, you know, they'll be intelligent, but they'll never have wisdom or something like that. That's really the difference between AI and us as human beings. But uh, just on the last one or two notes, I mean, what, what, Number one, what are the biggest misconceptions you think there are out there about AI and the technology itself? And then last but not least, what are you looking forward to uh, in, for the next three or four years in this space? Yeah, I think the misconception right now is people think it's more developed than it actually is. Uh, to some extent, it's great. Uh, so there are very um, unique cases where AI works very well. But I think our bias now is the fact that, oh, it's AI, it must work across a board for every type of application, which is simply not the case. So it, it's, a, it's more of expectation setting for AI right now. I, I think we'll get there eventually to some point, uh, and then we're gonna plateau quite a bit in terms of AI. But right now we're still at a point where, you know, it's very development phase and testing phase. So there's gonna be a lot of, um, issues, a lot of uh, miscalculations um, in terms of results, uh, unexpected uh, results as well. So I, I think that's the biggest mis misconception and it's a fault of not only the consumer, but the companies that are pushing themselves as AI um, simply for I don't know, funding, for uh, getting publicity. Uh, I've seen plenty of founders who, are, who just want to get on um, uh, Forbes 30 under 30, but they actually haven't created real product. But hey, it, it, you know, people love to take a bet on a dream, right? Or a vision. And so they just write blank checks thinking, yeah, yeah, get it done. And, and so I think, you know, it, it's the fault of these uh, audacious founders as well as the consumers who, um, you know, mischaracterize what AI currently is and can be. Uh, and then, sorry, I forgot your second No, that's <laughs> fine. The future. So the future, what are you excited about in terms of the future? 
what I'm excited about is how it can help you. So uh, I, I had this uh, grand idea of it being, have you ever seen the movie Hitch? I have, yeah. Yeah, that's the type of AI I want. I want AI to make me a better version of myself. So it, will, it could be, oh, hey, Bobby, don't forget to mention that thing on the podcast about uh, the time you, uh, you know, did a commercial or something, right? Like if, <laughs> if, if my AI was constantly assisting me in that sense, that would be amazing. Um, I think that's where the AI can go once, it, once we open ourselves more up into this uh, localized AI that we can have in the box more or less. And so I, I don't think we're far away from it. I think before 2025, this is something that you can get in, on your iPhone. Uh, without it being sent to, you know, some server that's going to um, be at risk at some point. So I, I think it's possible. And I think it's going to be an exciting feature, but it's going to be quite scary for a lot of people as well. Yeah, you say you want an assistant in your ear until it's like five hours down the line and you're like, oh man, it sounds like a nagging spouse or something like that, you know? So <laughs> be careful what you wish for, man. You never know what you'll get. <laughs> but, yeah, just um, let me be. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. But no, that's great. Uh, really appreciate, appreciate you having uh, the time for us today. And um, I'm sure people can find you. But uh, if people actually want to get in touch with you, where's the best place to learn more about what you're doing and uh, how they can learn more? Yeah, I'm, uh, I used to be very easy to find on the internet. But um, since then, a bodybuilder with the same exact name has taken over uh, the oh, SEO. No. <laughs> but um, if, you, if anyone wants to follow uh, food pictures, uh, craft beer recommendations, or stock tips, um, I'm at Bobby Tang at almost every single place out there. Nice. Fantastic. Thanks for being on the show. Great. Thanks for having me, Saka. Mm-hmm.